We're back. Empires of the Future talking about mere Christianity. Again, I hope you like it because uh, we're smack in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we'll get done, I would say, within four, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're on the back half, for sure. Yeah, and we're talking today about sexual morality. And so, uh, you know, maybe that will pique your interest if you're just getting started and you think, well, this is going to be boring. No, it's not. We're going to talk about some good stuff today. Uh, but before we get to sexual morality, we've got even more exciting stuff. That being morality and psychoanalysis. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> I guess uh, certainly to start with, um, some people are interested in psychology and some aren't. Now, one thing I'll say is you can't get around uh, having to deal with psychology today. If you look back at one of the things that has affected the average person the most in the last hundred years. Uh, you're talking about very little influence on a day-to-day life of sort of uh, psychological terms and psychological ideas to, oh goodness, I've been uh, listening and reading statistics uh, the last couple of days. Uh, it's over half uh, of the people. I, I think the number is 70% of people are taking some sort of... Uh, Drug, wow, uh, yeah, on a daily basis. Yeah, um, the a third. Yeah, I'm, I'm not good with numbers. I'm gonna stop throwing out numbers, <laughs> but it's uh, a lot. Something <laughs> like a fourth or a third of uh, adults are taking uh, an antidepressant or some, you know, something a, a mood yeah. drug. And again, you don't have those kinds of uh, moves without the psychological revolution, uh, which is to say, like, hey, if you're depressed, then here's a remedy that is based in some kind of drug or some kind of substance that we've developed. Um, And so that's happened uh, in the last 100 years. Just a a refresher, C.S. Lewis lived 1898 to 1963. Mm -hmm. And so the first half of the 1900s, basically. Um, And we were just talking before we started that uh, some of the things uh, today, we're running into our first chapter here that is kind of dated in some ways. Some of the arguments that he's making, (laughs) it's, uh, it's funny when you read an argument and you're like, Okay, you just made a point. I don't know who was making the other point. I wasn't making it. Yeah, <laughs> and I know. I and, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in with anybody who's making that point. So I'm with you, and I'm not with whoever that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's clearly addressing something that's uh, that's contemporary to him, or it seems like there's like another side to this argument that he is in, and it's like, well, I, yeah, I don't know what that other side is, but. What you're saying sounds right. (laughs) Right. Now, what I will say is that he's going to give what I think is a good model for um, how to engage with psychology, which you have to do. Um, So, for instance, psychological terms. If I were to ask you, name two or three psychological terms that people use in their everyday life that someone in 1900 wouldn't have known, what would you say off the top of your head? Phobia. Sure. Um, Depressive person oh, i don't know bipolar yeah personality yeah. I don't, something yeah. like that i'm thinking of like things that we talked about in my one of my psychology classes that we took that i took in college yeah things like that there's probably others because I, I be honest with you i think some of the things that some of the language involved in or that has come out of kind of psychoanalysis are pretty mundane like we are so familiar with them now that they are kind of a part of our right of our natural language i think like depression yes it's yes. sort of a, a clinical, psychological terminology, term, uh, uh, term that's now used, uh, thrown around quite often, yep. right? Um, sometimes appropriately, sometimes 
yeah. not, but yeah. Um, I would throw out like self-esteem, mm-hmm. uh, self-image, mm-hmm. uh, ego. Oh yeah. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, again, ego, that's a Freudian term. Um, now just C.S. Lewis pretty much lived in probably what can be considered the height of kind of Freudianism when Sigmund yeah. Freud was considered uh, to have given insights into sort of the psyche, which is another psychological term, um, that that people just took as sort of gospel, took as explaining reality. And um, in most circles, Freud is uh, fallen out of fashion uh, by quite a bit. But what's so strange about psychology is that uh, it all sort of gets mixed in together. Because like yeah. you said, how, how often do you still hear the term ego thrown around? A lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, the Freudian scheme of id, ego, and superego, you don't hear a whole lot about yeah. uh, the id or the superego. Um, and so that's one thing that is, uh, that, that is important to say is that um, these people who came up with a system like Freud, uh, he, he was all about his system. Mm-hmm. And what most people do is mix systems without thinking or even looking at what are the claims of the system as a whole Mm -hmm. um now and and another thing that i want to say about psychology is that you should find it strange i remember when i I started uh getting into it to 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 some degree i found it strange to think like so why was there no psychology until like 1860 (laughs) uh i mean you would think like uh these we would have asked questions like what motivates people before then. And the fact of the matter is we did. Yeah. Uh, And that those systems were more addressed in philosophy Philosophy. and politics and religion, Mm -hmm. but that we became really obsessed with questions about individuals. And we began to ask those really detailed questions. And you, you need a guy, uh, you know, Freud did some funny things that really just, uh, in a lot, in some ways you have to ask sales questions. Like, man, people really found it interesting to go like, Oh yeah, I have a subconscious. What can I know about that? And he's like, well, let me tell you, tell me your <laughs> dreams. And then I'll tell you what your subconscious is thinking, yeah. which is really like one of these weird sort of snake oil kind of salesmen, you know, cause it's like, we all have dreams. They're super weird yeah. and interesting. And we're all like, what in the world does that mean? I would yeah. say that's like a, just a regular old human impulse. If you look at the Bible, like in the old Testament, there's this theme of like people having dreams and kind of going, what does that mean? Yeah. And that sometimes God says, here's what this dream means. And sometimes God uses people. Uh, you know, Joseph had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him. Yeah. And his brothers were like, we don't like that dream one yeah. bit. <laughs> Why would you tell us about this dream? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that is like a human thing yeah. to have dreams. And then, of course, Freud is like, I can interpret your dreams, you know. And people bought it for a while. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a funny story in a lot of ways. But I would like to say that one thing that I, I really propose is um, put psychology back as a subcategory mm-hmm. of um, philosophy and realize when it steps on religion's grounds. Religion uh, deals with questions about meaning, mm-hmm. uh, questions about ultimate matters, which frankly, psychology doesn't do much more than to say, hey, you'd like to know more about ultimate matters. Yeah. And, and, and we often are drawn into these schemes that are just kind of like, uh, that, that don't explain much. Yeah. for us because we want the answer so bad and we we are um we are unfortunately uh we we like easy answers sometimes you yeah. know 
Yeah. And, and it's my perception. This is not, um, you know, don't take this as gospel necessarily, but uh, it's my opinion, my perception that with regards to with regards to psychology, it tends to be very good, pretty good at least when, you know, when it's at its best at diagnosing problems, but not always the best at fixing the problems, right? Mm-hmm. Or presenting, you know, uh, answers to the problems. It's very good. You know, you look at the DS, what is it, the DSM-5 <clears throat> or 6 or whatever one it is. It, I forget what DSM means right off the top of my head. Diagnostic uh, something manual. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but it's it's the tool basically used by psychologists to right. make diagnoses. Like, okay, here's the things to look for. These things are being presented, these signs, symptoms. Here's what is likely the diagnosis. So it's kind of a whole list, a whole book of all the diagnoses and things like that. And this is used by psychologists to diagnose problems, right. problems like depression, problems like bipolar, problems like schizophrenia, problems like gender dysphoria, which I don't think is called gender dysphoria anymore. I think it might be changed now. But um, all of these things that it's like, okay, here's, well, this is what psychology has done. It's allowed yeah. us a framework in order right. to a schema, if another word for that, kind of a, a category to put all these things into so that we can organize it, figure it out, know what it is. But then by and large, from there, psychology doesn't often have answers to the problems. Now, psychology might say, a psychologist might be able to say, here's a medication that has been shown in studies to help mitigate some of the things associated with this. But by and large, psychology psychology isn't able to answer a lot of the, the deepest problems that it's able to identify, maybe diagnose, can't answer the problems um, effectively. That's where, and I think it's helpful to see where C.S. Lewis is taking these things and dividing them, saying this is psychoanalysis, this is morality, this yeah. is what religion, this is what Christianity deals with, um, and deals with in a way that that psychoanalysis can't and shouldn't. There shouldn't be a crossover there. You need to be careful to keep these two things in their proper place, yeah. which is good and right because Christianity, in fact, has answers for um, for a lot of the things that psychology is able to point out and say, this is a problem. A lot of the answers are found in Christianity are right. found in Christ. Um, or at least, or at least a lot of the most accurate descriptions of what the issue is. Right. Yeah. And ultimately I would argue all of the answers to our psychological issues go back to fallen humanity, which is corrected, which is uh, made right in Christ Jesus yeah. um, for those who trust in him. So anyway, yeah. that's a long introduction right. and, to this, this chapter. But but that can point us right towards um, the big discovery that C.S. Lewis was dealing with in his time because of Freud was, hey, you have psychological baggage. You, mm-hmm. you, have, um, you have in your spirit, uh, in, your, uh, in your whole self, you know, maybe you... Um, have a chemical dependency issue. Some people are more mm-hmm. prone to addiction than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you are prone to depression. Um, and these things, we, we now have the benefit of a lot of years of study to go, look, are people equally prone to say obesity? Well, no. Uh, okay. Does, does being overweight affect your energy level affect your uh, outlook 
yes, it can. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of these things in, in, into to imagine what we should do first is imagine that where C.S. Lewis is, is people had come to terms with, okay, wow, there are different psychological makeups and that affects uh, your decision-making. Uh, and so what do we do about that? And people had come to a wrong understanding, which is, oh, wow, if we're psychologically different and we have subconsciouses, are we even making decisions? And a lot of people went, wow, maybe we're not. Mm-hmm. What, what if, what if then we're not, what if we're just, propelled along by our instincts uh, and, and by our raw material, by our basic desires. And that's all that happens is you have a desire, you do it. Yeah. And so what did he say about that? See, Are you propelled along by your basic oh. desires? Yeah. So, so he kind of breaks it up into two categories um, and says, there are two things happening kind of in, in decision-making with regards to, to us as human beings. There's the basic making of a choice. And this is, where morality is dealing with right and wrong. So I can choose either to do this thing that is right or do this thing that is wrong or do this thing that is right, not do that thing, whatever. You have the right and wrong presented before you. uh, But then beneath that, you have all kinds of things that contribute to this decision-making such as what he calls the raw materials or, or, you know, your nature, your inclinations, your upbringing, even some things that might be, um, messed up Mm -hmm. uh in your subconscious maybe that are impacting this decision that you're making right and that's where he kind of says that's what psychoanalysis is sort of dealing with or or bringing attention to so he kind of points to the two things that are happening uh in the act of choosing uh those kind of things um but it's the it's the various feelings impulses uh those kinds of things um which a person's psychological outfit uh, presents him with. Those are the raw materials of his choice. Uh, but then he still chooses right, right or wrong. And that's wh- what morality is dealing with. It's kind of how C.S. Lewis frames right. it, argues it. And, you know, he even divides the raw material into two kinds as well. He says, quote, either it may be what we would call normal and may consist mm-hmm. of the sort of feelings that are common to all men, or else it may consist of quite unnatural feelings due to things that are really dangerous. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Uh, due to things that have gone wrong in his subconscious. There you go. Yeah. Due to things that have gone wrong in his subconscious, thus fear of things that are really dangerous would be an example of the first kind, and the irrational fear of cats or spiders would be an example of the second kind. Yeah. Uh, the desire of a man for a woman would be of the first kind. The perverted desire of a man for a man would be the second. Now, what psychoanalysis undertakes is to remove the abnormal feelings, that is, to give the man better raw material for his acts of choice. Morality is concerned with the acts of choice themselves. Um, and so there's a lot of ways you could approach this. You could think about somebody who is abused as a child and uh, and really uh, has undue punishment for, yeah. say, once one act of uh, a disobedience and then may say may believe themselves like, well, I, there is no such thing as forgiveness. That, that yeah. you, you, you only, there is only punishment. Um, and he would say, well, that's, that's an unnatural, you know, it's, it's normal to feel guilt. It's not reasonable to feel, no, I, I will not hear of any forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and so we can see then how this is helpful in the sense of, uh, the categories that he lays out, um, and, uh, to address this error that he saw in his day, which is to say, you see how people would read this this way. Well, if, if there's these deep raw materials that we have going on inside of us, what if there's so much 
going on there that it overwhelms any possibility of making moral choices. No, the moral choice is still there. But I think he says a really powerful thing about God. What does it say about how God might assess our decisions? Yeah, I mean, he essentially says, you know, the Lord is going to, that God is going to take those things into account. Right. Um, you know, the Lord is not going to ignore uh, an issue in our subconscious. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of this. Um, well, I mean, he uses some examples that are that are probably somewhat helpful. Uh, we'll see here. Um, for example, and maybe uh, I'm I'm not going to look through the book here, yeah, sure. here while I'm trying to talk. But for example, if someone grows up and has a great home life, uh, has just a natural disposition to towards uh, kindness, towards doing right. And therefore, it takes very little effort, yes. very little moral will for them to kind of do the good and right things when they ought, so that it's kind of natural and easy for them. That is a kind of a different thing, as C.S. Lewis argues, from someone who has not grown up with that, doesn't have kind of that natural disposition, or, or you might even say predisposure to um, goodness, kindness. You might yeah. think of this as like people-pleasing, even. Yeah. Some yeah. people are natural people-pleasers. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take... It do, it's not as big of a thing for them to choose to do the right thing as it is for the person who it goes against kind of everything they've been trained in that they've grown up with or even that they're naturally disposed to that's a bigger deal for them and and might be a greater step and and according to cs and i don't know if i i don't know if i completely buy into it i don't know uh but according to cs lewis uh he is making the claim making the statement that you know god will look at those things and take those factors into account when considering this um, I think that's kind of the claim he makes, right? Yeah. And the the reason I don't completely buy into that is I want to know when when is this happening that God is taking these things into account? God is never going to at you know at final judgment is not going to look at someone and say, well, you know, you did the right thing, but it was way easier for you, therefore it doesn't count. Well, first of all, count towards what? Um, yeah. And I will- second of all. Like this is where he, when he was making this argument, I was kind of like, ah, I just don't know. Yeah, and it, I don't know. And he doesn't go to great lengths theologically. Uh, I mean, to me, I, I would place this there. There is this discussion in the New Testament about crowns and about mm-hmm, rewards, sure. and and I would place this there. I think it's the only reasonable place to yeah. put it that somehow there are rewards attached. Uh, you know, I mean, and. Uh, and it, and it it ties in both with uh, what you see in Revelation, but also with when Jesus says, you know, you'd be recording rewarded according to what you've done. Matthew twenty five about hey, you helped the mm-hmm. the least of these, and and that's mm-hmm. what you don't achieve salvation because of those things. But if you are new, those good works will characterize you. You you will see those, and so that is that's where I would place them right one this is i I do think that in terms of where this book goes one of the most powerful sections is right here where he says um when when you die and god raises you to newness of life he sees through uh all of these reasonings and even these false posture is false posturing that you might put up for other people about why you're doing the things that you do. Mm -hmm. And he knows the reasoning why you did it. And, uh, for some people, uh, who have not had a good way to go, uh, they, 
Well, I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis says, uh, one of these days we'll see everyone as they truly were, mm-hmm. and there will be surprises. Yeah. Uh, that, that to see see a, a soul uh, that is free of the junk. Yeah. Uh, that is that is a powerful thought. It, it uh, there's a Rich Mullen song that uh, he points at the same kind of thing. He says, "When my body lies in the ruins of the lies that nearly ruined me, uh, will you pick up the pieces that were pure and true and breathe your life into them and set them free?" That um, we right now do not know what it takes for each of us to do the good things that, that we might do. Um, and on our worst days, we tell ourselves these easy stories like, well, it's because I'm, I'm a nice person and, and this and that. It's like, well, uh, if, if what the Lord does tell us that if, you, if you've had much given, then much is required. Yeah. And, and a lot of us have. Uh, yeah. If you look at history, there's one start, but uh, family and, and so many other things that we've had much given. Don't rest on your laurels. Uh, right. it, it is... It is incumbent upon us to make good from what we've been given, not to sit on it. Right. I agree with everything you just said. Sure. I guess what I'm saying is I wish C.S. Lewis would have not assumed that his readers knew all that. Yeah. Maybe. You know, just so- something. And Because I, I think C.S. Lewis is where you're at, too, right? It's just kind of like if I'm, if I'm reading this as someone who's considering Christianity, right? I might read this section as, as I yeah. was reading it and think, man, this sounds like there's a lot of importance on on uh, me being moral in order to God will look at me in a better light. Yeah. Sure. Right. And I, I just, anytime I hear that, I want to say like, Hey, let's, I don't know. Right. Right. The, the good direction. news for you is that, that Jesus uh, gives hope for you. Not yes. that your good works will. Right. You right, right. And that, and that kind of was where it went. He made this, this one statement that I was kind of like, um, where he, where he says, uh, when a man who's been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing, does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I if we had gave up, if, excuse me, than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. Um, now, that's not me saying, well, hold on. Are you saying me giving my life for a friend isn't as important as that? No, that's not me saying that, but I'm saying he seems to be unnecessarily making a standard here, um, a scale of, I don't know. I agree with what you said. I do think that we are, because Christ himself says of, of those who much is given, much is required. There are expectations and things like that. But like, why make the claim, you know, that guy might be, as, as he says it, doing more than you or I if we give up a, our life for a friend. I don't think there's any reason to compare the two. I think it is to say, I would prefer to say a, a person who, in that case of that man who's been perverted from his youth, uh, his friends around him and you know are going to sneer at him if he does right even in the slightest, I would rather say for him that is a great and good right thing to do, um, period. Not might be better than you giving up your life for a friend. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. It I seems think like a, he's addressing the fact that we can get hung up in judging by appearances. Right. And I, and I get that. I get uh, here's, that. A, here's another section that I, I think is um, helpful in this regard. He says, uh, quote, Some of us who seem quite nice people may, in fact, have made so little use of a good heredity and a good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. Can we be quite certain how we should have believed, or I'm sorry, how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with the psychological outfit and then the bad upbringing and and then with the power of, say, Himmler. 
that is why Christians are told not to judge. Uh, and Himmler, by the way, organized uh, the death camps, Nazi death camps and these sorts of things. Uh, Hitler's good, the only one we remember. Good um, clarification. Uh, that is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. Most of the man's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. When his body dies, all that will fall off him. And the real central man, the thing that chose, that made the best or the worst out of this material, will stand naked. All sorts of nice things, which we thought our own, but which were really due to a good digestion, will fall off some of us. All sorts of nasty things, which were due to complexes or bad health, will fall off others. We shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he really was. There will be surprises. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a, a helpful quote with regards to what I'm saying, but also, like, there's a portion of that quote I don't like as well, and he says, God does not judge him on the raw material, but on what he has done with it. I'm just like, what do you mean by God will judge him? You know what I mean? And what do you mean by what he has done with it? I just wish he would go on to more explicitly deliver the gospel in this portion to say, you're not judged before God, um, by your raw material, but on what you've done with it. And only will you be judged right if what you have done with it is repented of your sin and trusted in Christ. I guess that's where I'm at with regards yeah. to this section. I wasn't, yeah, th- this section left me saying that a couple times. Only the kind of the first half of this uh, section. I don't know. We don't have to go into it anymore. That's I don't fine. Guess, but yeah. uh, does I, it, I hate does it help at all that this is the section where he makes what is I would say one of the most famous quotes from your Christianity, which is that with every choice you're becoming either either more of a heavenly or more of a hellish creature. Yeah, um, it probably points to that. And that, I think that, yeah, that's to me like what <clears throat> he's pointing to is the process of sanctification, right? Would you agree with that? As um, as we who are believers, uh, as we are pursuing Christ as we are um, empowered and carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we make choices in this life and as we are, you know, pursuing Christ, we are becoming either more like Christ or if we are not being sanctified, and that's all who are not true believers, um, we are becoming less like Christ, more hellish, yeah. I think he says. Is that what he's getting it at? Really is he getting at me, sanctification? It really puts me in the mind of... Uh, Jesus is teaching on the four soils that mm-hmm. that there are those who uh, build their life uh, on on good soil, but then there are those who build their life along the path. And and you know Jesus says that the demons come along and take the word. Uh, there are those who who the life is choked out by the worries of this life and and uh, the promises of wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who grow up for a time, mm-hmm. but then. Uh, give up when the, when the sun rises with scorching heat and in, in, in times of trial, uh, give up. I, th- I think there is a mystery in how and why uh, some do not persevere. So I, I don't think that this is limited to sanctification. I don't, I don't think that he's pointing to that. I think it's pointed to the larger mystery of why, as people hear the gospel, it's not as uh, necessarily simple as it's this thing that we, we deal with in, in the church about how not everybody who comes forward and says, I want to follow Christ, sure. continues to follow sure. Christ. Yeah. Um, there's a mystery in there that uh, that we look at and we go, wow, I wish people did continue to follow Christ, but they certainly don't all. And so it, it is it is in there. Uh, and I, uh, I, I don't know all the places you can put it other than I do think it's useful and helpful to have an understanding that um, if you look out at the world and you go, 
there's no excuse for the fact that, you know, not everybody's Billy Graham, you know, uh, that, well, look, you know, uh, Billy Graham will answer for what he was given just like you will answer for yeah. what you've been given. Sure, sure. And that it's not just as simple as only yeah. the positive that you were given. You were given hindrances as well. Yeah. And God will also not look at you and go, well, you could have preached on, you know, every continent too. Yeah. What were you doing <laughs> with your life? You know, when some people have had a pretty rough way to go, of it, yeah. you know, and, um, and that's, I think the big point of this yeah. chapter. Yeah. Take, so essentially take your eyes off of other people. Stop comparing yes. yourself to them. And, and that is, I yeah. really think it is an antidote for that, that aspect of pride that makes you go, yeah. uh, well, I'm certainly, well, I mean, think about how far reaching that this is to say, oh, I'm not Hitler. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and in a culture where yeah. we don't have positive examples so that we find such solace in going, well, I can find somebody who's worse than me to think of and then convince myself since I'm better than them, I must be okay. Yeah. This is to divest you. In a lot of ways, I think this chapter is to divest you of that idea because that's not good enough. That's not going to get you anywhere before God and it shouldn't sure. get you anywhere before yourself because uh, what you've been given is is a lot yeah. uh, positive and negative, but don't, don't use the negative for excuses and don't waste the positive thinking, Oh, well I've done, you know, done what I could or yeah. this or that. Yeah. I think, I think my, and I, I agree with that. I do think you're probably right. That's what he's getting at. I think my question still comes back to sort of to what end, like to what end is, so he's saying, you know, when you're thinking about what it means to be a moral person, um, you're thinking this way, don't be looking at, the other people around you. So, for example, the um, oh, I'm trying to the the drug addict on the side of the street who has you know been committed of assault yeah. or convicted of assault. Um, comparing yourself to him, don't do that. Or or even comparing yourself to other people around because you have a different circumstances. You have different raw material. Essentially, um, he seems to say, look at yourself. Consider what is right and wrong for you, even in light of the raw material and, and be a moral person. is kind of what he's saying. And you know, is that, is that a correct representation or is that unfair? I don't want to be unfair. Um, I, I don't see him saying here, you can know you're a moral person based upon, I, I think he's more, uh, approaching excuses you'll make to say, I am a moral person. Look at X, Y, and Z. And, I would have never become, uh, I, I think he's addressing what I do also see as a very uh, extensive problem that we go, I could never be a murderer. I could never mm -hmm. oversee mm -hmm. killing of Jews in uh, Germany. Mm -hmm. I could never, you know, uh, do these heinous things. Yeah. And it's just like, well, all that happened is those people were put in the right circumstances with the right set of excuses that they yeah. believed about themselves yeah. that you are certainly capable of believing sure. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. He, he does seem to be saying though, that we can be moral people, right? It, I, I mean, in previous chapters, he's certainly said the opposite of that. Um, well, he said, he says, I, and, and I, I would say that, um, that this is the background of this is like, okay, with the work of Christ present, what then, do you do? And, you know, I think, I mean, I, yeah, I guess it, yeah, maybe I, and now I'm fully willing to admit, it seems like it's such an arrogant thing to be sitting here, like critiquing CS Lewis on, on his abilities, his writing, things like that. But 
But I think what I really am wishing was here was him pointing us to the gospel and kind of ultimately saying, a lot of all, don't compare yourself to one another. You want to know what, what it really means to be righteous, um, good and right. You need to compare yourself to God and you'll find that you fall woefully short. Um, and I, I think he's getting to all of that. Yeah. I, we're, I think we're in the middle more, of the book right now. I, I wonder if he, he seems to more often point to the person of Christ yeah. than to a sort of kind of Pauline formulation sure. of the gospel. And, and that's, I, I, I want you to critique him. Yeah. Um, just because he had his particular bents, uh, just yeah. like anybody else. Um, and so that, that I think is a, is a good way yeah. for us to go forward. I'll throw out, uh, some things that, that why I say that is, that, you know, he has a quote that says, when a man is getting better, he begins to see the evil that is raging within him. Yeah. When a man is getting worse, he loses sight of it completely. Uh, this whole analogy uses that you don't understand sleep when you're sleeping. Yeah. Uh, that that it, The point seems to be you need to look to Christ and away from any explanation or any sort of uh, self-justification that this is why I'm better than person X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And that was a really good um, quote that you read. That was one I had underlined in my book as well. It was a really good point that he makes. And it's good, and it's and it's right. And I think even from a Christian, uh, from any Christian perspective, we say, yeah, that's true. Because think about the most, um, most godly person you know. Um, most of them are willing and quick to admit their faults, yeah. their shortcomings. They know their sin is ever before them, as, as King David says. Um, it's the people who are, um, the least godly that tend to think they're doing okay, that they're doing pretty good. Um, and and that was a really good point he made. He talked about also like drunkenness, like you don't understand the, um, the reality of drunkenness when you're drunk. It's only when you're sober that you understand the the reality of that. And so that was a good point. And I agree with that. Um, this one, yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Um, There is a lot going on in this chapter that I'm just like maybe somewhat confused by and, and left wondering what he left wondering, maybe not understanding fully what he was doing, which is probably my own fault. Well, no, and I would recommend to anyone as we leave this chapter behind that any psychological jargon that is in your mind, man, spend some time, uh, identifying that defining yeah. those terms, because, uh, a lot of that, uh, it, it all has a direction. It all exists within its own sort of worldview. And uh, a lot of it is not necessarily helpful. I mean, um, things that we sort of accept knee jerk, like a self-esteem movement that, I, that, I, that your problem is you don't feel good enough about okay. yourself. It's like, yeah. ah, look, you know, um, uh, let's try to be objective about these sort of things. Yeah. That's either true or it isn't. And most of the time, you know, when I see where we're going today is this uh, common talk about self-care days. It's yeah. like, look, the, yeah. the answer is not for you to sit and eat junk food and watch Netflix all day and then think that you'll wake up tomorrow going, man, I feel so much better <laughs> yeah. about me and what I'm doing. Now that that's what I spent yesterday. It's like that. Mm-mm. No, that's not, you know, uh, yeah. you know, uh, in a culture like uh, ancient Rome, uh, you know, Roman soldiers could march 70 miles in a day and put up a defensible fort before they went to bed that night. Yeah. Like, uh, we, meanwhile, 
we don't have goals <laughs> in general. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and believe me, Rome is not the top of the mountain for me, but I see us making a whole different set of errors thinking that the problem is we haven't given ourselves enough leniency. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's, that doesn't, I don't think that's borne out by any sort of objective assessment. Right. Um, and nor is it going to make us feel better to yeah. go, you know, I, the, the problem is I haven't focused enough on me. It's like, ooh, I uh, doubt that that's the I, problem I, in I most cases. <laughs> I don't uh, know that that has ever been a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know why Roman soldiers were able to do the kind of things they did? Why is that? March all that time, put up defensive things in like a day. Because they ate oatmeal. I tell you. The Roman, oatmeal's the, the Roman you oatmeal. You and I have talked about this. That's right. Oatmeal. I, I ate oatmeal this morning, my friend. So did I. And I put up a defensible fort, too. I, uh, you know what? I did not. I ran, though. I ran this morning. You did. So that's oh, good. Man. Yeah. Are you telling me you didn't put up a defensible I did. fort? I did. I'm without defense. Okay. <laughs> um, we're going to go on to chapter five, which is sexual morality. Denton, I'm going to throw a statement at you, and I ex- expect you to either accept it or to destroy it. Okay. <laughs> Sex is nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, you little so and so. Um <clears throat> I either I either have to accept it or destroy it. Those are my only options. Well no, you can. Okay. Do with it what you like. Uh I accept it given that it is or upon the condition that it is used and enjoyed within its God ordained context and purpose. Um, th- yeah, he makes this point in the book, um, which is what you're getting at, I think, or else you just think a lot like C.S. Lewis. Um, but this point in the book that, uh, as he talks about, he talks about chastity in this book and that, so that's kind of the, or in this chapter, I mean, mm-hmm. chapter five, uh, is kind of the theme of the chapter. And in it, he talks about this statement that, um, what was it again? Sex is nothing to be ashamed of. Sex is nothing to be ashamed of. That's yeah. the statement. <clears throat> right. And in one sense, as a Christian, as Christians who believe the Bible, we can say, yes, that is true. God created sex, right. and he created it to be enjoyed, and he created it for a purpose and for our good, um, which includes but is not limited to procreation. Um, I do not think that, you know, so as a husband, I do not think that I have any reason to be ashamed of the fact that me and my wife enjoy sex with one another. Um, in fact, I think we have a reason to praise God for that. Yep. Uh, and yeah, not be ashamed of it. Now, uh, when many people around us and was even the case, this is the chapter where I had to look back like, when was this book written? Oh, right. Wow. Because <laughs> as much as the, sort of chapter four, uh, was kind of out of step with where we are, nobody's praising, you know, walked around going, Sigmund Freud knew everything about everything. It's hilarious to think that we are in the exact same situation, but worse. Oh Yeah. Uh, in terms of this chapter where he says like, you know, uh, is this a chapter where he says, you know, what if you went to a different country and they had a, some curtains that they pulled back and then oh there was a juicy steak that's up there on a chair and oh. then you just, you woo. Yeah, so, so real quick. So when when the world nowadays uses sex as nothing to be ashamed of, they oftentimes mean something totally different. Yes. And they mean, what we have talked about before on a, on a different podcast, <clears throat> they mean... And we hear, hear this term destigmatizing. Yeah. They mean that all things related to your sexual appetite, your desires, uh, are nothing to be ashamed of. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. Sexual desire in any form is nothing to be ashamed of. And all things ought to be destigmatized, sure. as we see in our culture happening yeah. around yeah. us, that things are being just increasingly yeah. the attempt is to destigmatize things. Uh, let me first of all say to that, I'm pro stigma. I don't know if you knew this about me, Jackson. I'm pro stigma. There are some things 
uh, in society that ought to be stigmatized. Right. Um, okay. And, mo- and if, if most people who will uh, be honest, you know, uh, could admit, you oh, know, yeah. do you think there should be stigma about adults having sex with children? Yes. Uh, I, yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, that should be stigmatized. How about adults having sex in public places? Yes. That, you have to stigmatize that. We, we don't want people to do that. <laughs> well, less and less now. Right. And then, <laughs> you know? yes. Yep. We, so we see this move even from where he was at the time, C.S. Lewis. But yeah, so he, he talks about um, to kind of help for us picture what's going on with sexual desire and sexual immorality just to show where it's come to and and particularly this sin you know he takes some time and compares it to sort of like our appetite for food which our appetite for food as we know is not a sinful thing um eating food is not a bad thing in fact it's a necessary thing for survival right but he says suppose you're in a country i'm just going to read it because it's great yeah it's a hilarious mental picture if i'm being honest Suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover as, uh, so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And the answer is yes, right? So he's comparing it to a, like a striptease. Mm-hmm. Um, that was as common in his day and just as common today, you know, a, a girl getting undressed um, for the gratification of men. Um, and now imagine there, it's a plate of food and it's slowly being uncovered and, you know, like pull the, the napkin up a little bit more and there's like mashed potatoes and the crowd's going, oh, yeah, oh, oh man, man, I'm getting mashed potatoes, oh, yeah, whatever. Uh, and there's like freaking out over this and then the lights go off and like, Whole crowds coming to see this plate of food being uncovered. Right. It's kind of a hilarious scene, but when you begin to think about the world that we live in, right, that is the scene that we a, a scene that we see in the world today right. in our culture. Right, um, this over exaggerated, over um, indulgence in the sexual appetite, and and in fact to the point where it's become a perversion, a distortion of the sexual appetite that God has given us, which goes back again to something He has said in previous chapters about kind of right and wrong, which is that so often when, when things go awry, it is a distortion or an overemphasis on a God-given thing mm-hmm. um, that's just being distorted. And we see this again here that, as we said, sex is nothing to be ashamed of. From a Christian perspective, we can say that. But it doesn't mean that all forms of sexual uh, orientation, immorality, perversions, inclinations, that they are all also not to be ashamed of. Right. And, and right. one of the distortion, uh, one of the phrases that I would think it has sort of snuck under the radar when, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of is that, uh, in some cases people are going, yeah, sex is nothing to be ashamed of, meaning lust is nothing to be ashamed of. And, yeah. and, and he would certainly say, well, it's 100% wrong. Right, uh, right. Lust is useless. Uh, lust is there to inflame you with a desire that will not be satisfied. That's right. And we live in this very strange time that we have lived in the presence of uh, lust and things that promote lust for so long that we can convince ourselves, I guess, this is normal, and that oh, yeah. the only way to see our way out of it is for certain things like this, uh, f- 
to be proposed to us. Like imagine, you know, if, if you were just, if bacon was just put up in front of you at all hours of the day, as if, as if longing for bacon was the most important thing that would happen to you in a day, day to day basis. Um, but we do live in that uh, situation mm-hmm. in regard to lust. And, and one thing that I can say about this that is, uh, that ought to, I think, shock, uh, people even more, uh, uh, recently a book was published uh, by a woman named Louise Perry. She's uh, from London and um, it's called the case against the sexual revolution. And she basically says, look, we've spent 50 years with the sexual revolution as, uh, as first brought on by the pill. And what do we have now? And she basically says uh, there's one group that are winners and that is high status males who basically mm-hmm. can have meaningless casual sex without relationship and get what they want with very little consequences. And she says, uh, who is losing is in general, uh, most all kinds of women who generally want a relationship. Uh, All the rest of men who may not be as high status, because unfortunately what happens is women will then compete for the high status man who has no incentive to give a relationship. And all of these, uh, a great proportion of women are going after the high status men, which means the lower status men are, left out in the cold and don't know what to do about it. Uh, and there's all kinds of terms thrown around about men like this today. And she basically says, and she does not come at this from some, she, she didn't start out with some conservative conspiracy. She uh, was a person of the left who just basically looked at this and went, this doesn't make sense. We've created a system that is really not working for most of the population. And what is strange about it is so that in our society where you have uh, more online pornography every day, more than there's certainly that there ever has been in history where you have new platforms like OnlyFans, which approximate, for people who don't know what's happening with this, this is a service where people get on and they uh, will post images of themselves and videos uh, based upon how much you pay and what you communicate to them. But then they approximate sort of a relationship by asking you about your family or these sort of things, depending uh, what we are doing is we are creating false relationship, false sex, and we're more frustrated by it when meanwhile, young people are literally in fewer and fewer relationships every year. This is literally uh, one of the strangest things that I have to tell you about the time that I have now left youth ministry versus the time that I came into it is that uh, teenage sex is down, and I would love to tell you that I'm happy about that, but that is because teenage relationships, actual relationships are down. Mm-hmm. That what has happened is uh, technology has in some ways replaced relationships for young people, um, but that mostly it is young people are lonely and without embodied relationships mm-hmm. in, in general. Yeah. And that all of these things I was just mentioning, that's what's happening at the, the greater population level is just happening in kind of the beginning stages for young people. And so this is not good news. Right. It's not good news at all. And leading to literal catastrophic concerns about depression among young people with very little recourse. Like, what do we do about it? Well, we, we're, we need to do things that we don't seem to have any will to do, which is go back to old ways, like yeah. spending time together, getting to know people, yeah, each other face to face, working through awkwardness, stop being so 
self-conscious about how, how we are in person, um, but we're very unwilling. There is little willingness to do that. Meanwhile, here's, here is, here's what is so sad about the whole thing. Meanwhile, while uh, the average sort of, say, uh, under 30-year-old uh, is either not, not involved in a relationship at all, um, meanwhile, married people have more sex than any, uh, even, quote, successful sing people, single people, mm-hmm. because this is a committed relationship where all of these details are worked out, and you have Sorry. what the man sacrifices is, what is the typical sort of male desire to be out uh, and, and to be around multiple women, but what the woman sacrifices is this concern that women have born in them for right reason that, look, women do not have an impulse to have casual sex in general. It's more costly for women. And even though the birth control pill changed a lot of things, it, it changed physical things, not mm-hmm. emotional things. Right. And we are still, even if people look at the birth control pill, go like, oh, that's, you know, two, three generations ago. We, we have not changed what humans are still. And so this is uh, the big emphasis in that book. And what C.S. Lewis says here is borne out that, look, sex is nothing to be ashamed of. What you're talking about is what it was made for, right. which is the biological purpose of sex is procreation. But God gave it to married couples in order to enjoy each other. But we, we look at it, and, and what we have done is what we've done with so many other technologies and and things that God has given me go well let me take it and I'll do what I think I ought to do with it because I know better mm-hmm. and then you just leave me alone well then it's not working right it's not working at all right. uh, but that's the project unfortunately what we tend to do is we go well I'm gonna keep on fiddling with this project and and using it in my own mind to my to my own desires rather than for certainly I'm not going to do what you think I ought to do with it God and it's not going to work it is clearly not working now. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, he 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 says at the toward, near the beginning of the chapter, he says chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues, uh, and I think that he's largely right. And whenever this phrase is used by the world, sex is nothing to be ashamed of. They mean release all chastity. Chastity yeah. is is to be done away with now. Any sort of control of sexual impulse, whereas Christians say, no, this is a chastity is a part of uh, God's intention for the appropriate use and enjoyment of sex. Right. And you're right when you say that married couples uh, on on the, you know, by, in general, tend to have more frequent, more satisfying, better sex than any other demographic that there is. Uh, and I don't think that's coincidental. Right. Um, I think that is a clear demonstration of the fact that sex is good and right. was given for a good purpose and in a proper context. And when we engage in the things that God has given us in the way in which he has given us, given them to us to engage in, in the right context and for the right purpose, then we will experience a greater deal of joy, love, satisfaction in all of those things. And this is everything, right? This is, this is food. This is art. This is everything that, that brings us a sense of pleasure and joy brings us more pleasure and joy and satisfaction when we engage in it, um, in the way that it was designed for designed for us and given to us by God. Yeah. I mean, another way I think you can express this that we haven't yet is uh, if you went to, um, say if you gathered a group of uh, young people on any 
any continent, any place on the face of the earth, and you said, uh, I've got some great news for you. Uh, people used to believe you ought to control yourself in regard to this, but my good news for you is that you should do whatever you want with your aggression. Yeah. Whatever you feel, I want you to ask yourself, you probably have never asked yourself what you really feel deep down inside you would like to do with your aggression. I want you to get a hold of it right now and then do whatever you feel like doing. Um, I think we all know what would ensue. Uh, the Lord of the Flies would ensue. Right. Uh, and and uh, I, I hope we, we realize and remember that. Um, but it is just as crazy to think, the, this is what the experiment we've been living with for a while when people say, ask yourself what you would want to do sexually and then, uh, and then go ahead and do that. You, you need to ask yourself, why haven't I cut loose sooner? Well, it's just as foolish. And, and it is just as crazy to think of a place where then uh, after 50 years of that experiment in aggression, people would identify themselves by who they like to beat up. Mm. They would have labels for themselves, like, well, I, I would like to fight people that uh, are smaller than me. Yeah. And that's just who I am. It's just nonsense. Yeah. It, it's, not, uh, it's not a reasonable way to identify yourself. Right. Um, we are more than our desires. Yep. Our desires are part of who we are, but if we have stopped discriminating between which desires are good and godly and which ones are evil, because... Uh, the, the definition provided here, a good person is, look, if you love God and love other people, if you're willing to sacrifice, mm-hmm. as God says, I, I, I want to teach you what love is. Greater love is no one than this. And they lay down his life for his brothers. Yep. You know, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Love is sacrifice. And then we can learn who we are. We have to know how to discriminate between all of these raging desires that we feel inside of us. It's not as simple as picking out a set of them and going, ah, those are the good ones. Yeah, that's right. And whatever those might be, you've got to give a green light to all of them. That's nonsense. It's just nonsense, but it's, we live in the middle of some of that nonsense. That's right. And, you know, and he makes the point, like, there are people who are— we, it, 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 This is so wild to me. This was 1940s <laughs> that he was writing— um, and it's only worse. But even then, he kind of makes the point there are people who um, have financial interests yeah. uh, who are making money off of the sort of uh, cultural obsession with yeah. sex and therefore are heavily invested in keeping each and every one of us obsessed with sex yep. uh, and and keep our, our chastity out of the picture, keep any sort of restraint out of the picture. Uh, and he says the reason is a man with an obsession is a man who is very – who has – very little sales resistance. Right? Uh, it's concerning. It is concerning. It is concerning. And that, that's kind of a side issue, you know, right. aside from the morality of all of these things, just consider the fact that we live in a culture that is filled, filled with people who want to keep you, want to keep me, want to keep us uh, inundated with and obsessed with sex for their financial gain because mm-hmm. there is great financial gain. Right. Only fans is a prime example. Right. Um, and people can right because who's making money off of OnlyFans? It's not primarily any of the women who are working on that site, and some men to do too. But generally, the women. It is the male <laughs> owners of the company. Sure, <laughs> sure. They yeah, like that's pretty hard to ignore. Um, but even there are some women that are making great yes. money doing it yes. and have given up other jobs, other careers to do this. Um, but like, let's be clear here: what they are doing, we can. There's no reason to sugarcoat it. 
these women are giving up other careers for a career of prostitution and exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. Prostitution, exploitation. They are selling their bodies for financial gain. That's, that's the world that we've come to. And, and, right. and it sounds, you know, there are some people that hear that might hear me say that. I don't know if any of our listeners will or not, but there are some who would hear me say that and just take great offense to that, um, that I would compare it to prostitution, but it absolutely is. Um, it is a woman selling her body, um, for financial gain and because of the incentivization of it, um, because it has been so incentivized and you hear, I mean, you just hear just tragic stories about, um, about women who, yeah, they got into this and pretty soon their lives were ruined from it. Yeah. But it was the money that got them in. This could get me through college. This could support my child and, and me and, and all these kinds of things. But there are ramifications coming down the road for you and for societies at large who embraces and accepts these things and celebrates these things that we don't even have a full understanding of at this right. point. Um, but th- it is where we are at. And, and this is why our society is so inundated with it. Um, and there's financial gain for many. Uh, it's why chastity has become and is the most offensive Christian virtue that you could ever propose. Right. Um, right. Uh, he says being unchaste is trying to make others lustful. Um, you can imagine, I, I think it's so useful to pick up these, uh, you can imagine worlds where people spend, companies spend millions of dollars. How could I make people want to fight more? <laughs> How could I make people be more slaves to their stomach? Uh, yes, and we do have companies that are spending literal billions of dollars to think, how can I sexually excite someone? If they will come to my porn site once, how can I make sure they come back again and again and again? Mm-hmm. And, and and it's frightening to think how good at it some of these companies yeah. are becoming. Yeah, and, and that's the world that you live in now. Yeah. You know, whether you chose it or not, you, it, it is. This is where we are, and so you, uh, you and the people that you care about— uh, you have to have wisdom about this, about how to proceed because, uh, their weaknesses are being exploited. Yep. Yep. And, and I think this, this leads us to probably a good way to kind of sort of draw near to a close of this chapter. Um, as he, he comes to the point then, and I think we, there are probably people listening who are like, this is so difficult though. You're right. It is the most difficult Christian virtue. How do I do this? Yeah. You know, how, like that, that is kind of the next question. Like, okay, I want chastity. I want to to right. be morally upright in this way, but the question is how because I'm up against some serious odds. And, right. and you know, kind of the the um, enemies that you're up against, he points out, are three. It's first of all our warped natures. Uh, it's the devils who tempt us, and it's all the contemporary propaganda for lust. Uh, all these things combined to make us feel that these desires that we're resisting are natural, healthy, reasonable. Yeah. Um, that it's it becomes almost perverse or abnormal to resist them. Right. Chastity becomes right. perverse or abnormal. Right. Um, but yet, as Christians, we know, no, this is what we are called to. This is what living moral lives, uh, following in Christ's footsteps and in, in, in his example. And if we seek to be more like Christ, this is what we ought to do. Right. Uh, but it's a difficult, difficult thing. Right, and this is a moment where we should say, look, if you're a single person and dealing with uh, the frustration of desires, and that's not just sexual desire, it is loneliness, it is, uh, it is just an, an emptiness. I, I know, I remember exactly what a lot of that is. Cry out to God, ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. There's no, right. we are not counseling you to just buck up and try harder. That's right. You're going to need help because this is in, in this regard, 
it's not just that the entire culture has set itself up against you. The entire culture has set itself up to manipulate your weakness in this regard. Yep. And I'm really glad that you said that. And I'm really glad that that is also the direction that C.S. Lewis went. He kind of, uh, he kind of really gave me a, a big, like, Oh, great. This is, this is good. Uh, where he kind of makes the point. He says, then you, um, excuse me. Uh, but then we think you will get help towards obeying them. Oh, I'm, I'm getting all lost here. Here's what he says. He says, you are not alone in this. Yeah. And he says, you must ask for God's help. Um, this is not an, an issue that is going to be fixed, that is going to be overcome simply by human effort. Right. Uh, but it's only by the help of the Lord. It's only by the help of the Holy Spirit that you're going to be able to do this. And, you know, to that, I'm like, yep, praise be to God. That is yeah. exactly right. Um, that That is the case. And he says, and I think this is helpful, it's so easy to, to become discouraged. And this is, you know, this is for single men, single women, but it's not just for them. It's for, there are a whole host of married people out there that are dealing with, and in a lot of cases, many of the same sins of lust, temptation, pornography, all these kinds of things that single people are. Um, it's Marriage is not the answer <laughs> to your sexual sin, as many people think it is. They yeah. think, well, I've... I'll give up these things once I'm married and have have a proper outlet. Look, no, you're no, you're your doing sexual this all sin wrong. will change oh. form when you get married. Yeah, don't don't buy that lie. That's exactly right. Um, and uh, you know, a big part of the of the point and kind of the um, the reason of why and the reason it's so easy to just embrace it is because it's so hard to feel any victory. We think mm-hmm. chastity is impossible. Yeah, I've been given an impossible task to live a chaste life. And therefore what many people do is they decide, you know, kind of to just not try yeah. in a sense. And he, uh, CS Lewis compares it helpfully to like an example of an examination question. There might be an examination, an exam question that you get, say you're taking a test you get a question and you have the option to either answer it or not answer it. And you're on an, under any compulsion to answer the question. You won't be dinged if you don't answer it. Um, but if you answer it wrongly, you might be. In that case, you could pass over the question. But he says in most you know, examination questions, you are under compulsion to not answer. If you answer uh, this sort of maybe short answer essay question, for example, um, and your answer isn't exactly right, you might get dinged a little bit on, on answering that question. But if you ignore the question altogether, you are sure to get a flat zero, a complete right. F failing grade on that question. Uh, because you didn't even try. It is a compulsory question. Yeah. We don't have a choice to whether or not to answer the question of whether we will or won't live chaste lives, live morally in this way. Um, it's a question you have to answer. Right. And so to say, well, I could never be perfect is not a reason to not answer the question. Right. Uh, and, and it's this an is, excuse to not start. It's an excuse to not start. That's exactly right. And... He says, what we do, and I'm going to read for you another quote. It uh, says, even when you have done so, that is at when you've asked God for help, it may seem to you for a long time that no help comes or less help than you need is given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Yep. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often, what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just the power of always trying again. And I think that was a really good and gospel-saturated mm-hmm. uh, quote that, that he gives there to say this is what the gospel is. The gospel is not be perfect. 
and you will be saved. The right. gospel right. is you cannot be perfect. Right. Stop looking to yourself. Look to Christ. And and what what does what are you driven to do then? The answer is you're you're called to just keep getting up and to have hope. That's exactly right. Forgiveness is available in Christ. Right. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is essential. It is key to the gospel. And yet it is the thing that we oftentimes forget and it leaves us feeling defeated in our sin. Mm -hmm. Never, ever forget the forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. Uh, It is, it is there and it is for you. And when you fail, Exactly what C.S. Lewis is saying here is what we're called to do. We're called to uh, to ask for forgiveness, repent of our sin, pick ourselves up in God's grace, uh, resting in that and moving forward in that, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and try again, right? Yeah. And His mercies are new every morning. Yeah. Uh, and so for for the person out there who says chastity is really really hard, I say you are right. <laughs> I 100% agree with you. And the gospel is really, really good. Right. And in Christ, God is really, really merciful right. and forgiving. Right. How good? How many times can you be forgiven? We don't know. Yeah. He says, keep getting up. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, the disciples said to Jesus, like, this seems too good to be true. Yeah. What a, you know, should we, should we forgive people seven times if they forgive or if they sin against us? And Jesus said, how about... How do all the times you can think of, basically? Yeah. 70 times 7 is what he says, which is a yeah. way to say all the completeness times all the completeness. It's like yeah. God keeps on forgiving. But how? That seems, is God a fool? Uh, you don't understand how good God is to you poor sinners. Uh, and that's, that's what he says. Yeah. And, and so that's, it is, it's incredible yeah. news. It is, it, is beyond, uh, it is beyond what we could have hoped for, but God is that good. Yeah, that's right. And and that is kind of the what I would come to the ultimate answer of this chapter to say, don't buy into the lie of of the culture, the lie right. of sexual satisfaction being found in all these things that uh, that all sexes and forms of sex and and sexual desires are to be embraced and not to be ashamed of. Don't believe that lie. Uh, believe the gospel right. that even though you do still struggle, you do still fall short at times. We have no excuse not to trust in the forgiveness of Christ and get up and pursue holiness, pursue righteousness. Right. That's good news. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. Uh, important stuff here. Uh, some of the stuff more complicated, but look, this is, uh, this is good news in places where if we are honest, we can look and see uh, we are shackled in sins in these. We, we are believing things that are just clearly destroying us. And we're so far down the rabbit hole that we're almost uh, we're almost unable to believe any news that might break the chains that are on us. But the chains can be broken. It's just we can't lie to ourselves. We can't make the excuses that are so common. That's right. That's right. As Chris Tomlin said, my chains are gone. I've been set free. Uh, I'm not a big fan of adding words to classic hymns, but he did it, and man, yeah, it's got some truth to it. It's good. Well, we're singing that this Sunday here at First Southern, so I... I the My Chains Are Gone version? Yes, yes. Look at you guys. Yeah. We sing both versions. I like yeah. both versions. Nice. I like it. All right. We're going to leave it there. This has been Empires of the Future. And we will see you in the future.